Good morning, everyone. Thank you for braving the snowstorm to be here. When, when I woke up this morning, our, our window was completely frosted over up in our bedroom. And um, the last time I preached when there was a lot of snow on the ground, on my way to church, I bumped my leg against the car, and I had this giant salt thing. And so Jess had to run home and get me new pants because of how awkward it was. I was wearing like dark blackish pants. So this morning I woke up and I put on jeans and I came downstairs and then there was no snow and then I felt silly, but I was already committed to the jeans. I didn't want to go back upstairs, so I I wore jeans out and brought my clothes here. And this is going somewhere. You're probably like, great start, Matt. Um, But, and I'm really, really excited to share this with you all. Um, On Labor Day, that was the last time I preached, I wore these same pants and they did not fit very well at all. Like, um, they, they actually were not buttoned. I just had the belt cinched really tight, and I just prayed that it didn't start to seep out or anything. Um, and after Thanksgiving, we're, we're like four days after, three, four days after Thanksgiving now. Jess and I stayed home this year. We cooked a whole turkey for just the two of us. And when I got up this morning and got to church and had to put these pants on, they fit. I could, I could take the belt off. And they would say, yes, yes. So that's something to be thankful for. Um, I just wanted to start with that because it's just it's a really good start to my day, um, just knowing my pants fit. Um, a lot of wardrobe issues. Um, this morning, we're going to be in a sermon out of the book of Ephesians. It's titled, Do This Instead. And as we start, I want to tell you that this sermon is an international collaboration. You see, I have a friend named Marco. That's Marco with his wife, Fede, and their baby, Isabel. And Marco, about two weeks ago, when I found out I was preaching this week, I reached out to Marco and said, hey, I'm preaching. The, the idea I had is when I realized, oh, we've done that in the last year. You got any ideas? And we start chatting, and he's like, well, I'm preaching that same Sunday. What if we just do the sermon together and, like, prep it together? And so for the last two weeks, me and Marco have been chatting online, and as, as we've worked on our sermons, we've been encouraging each other and challenging each other. Um, I say all this not just to tell you that, that I, we're going to talk a lot about community and unity today, and we were practicing that as we prepared this sermon, but also if there are any parts you don't like, find me on Facebook, and then through me, find mutual fr- or find friends and find Marco, and just give him the feedback because it was probably his fault if you don't like part of this sermon. All all that aside, I love Marco, and I I love that we were able to work on this sermon together. I'm very excited. Their church has been in the book of Ephesians for like 12 weeks now. And so we're going to preach on Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, but I'm also going to give you an overview. And so we're going to kind of, in the first part of our sermon, hopefully do what they've been doing over 12 weeks in about 10 minutes. So we'll see if we can get there. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son and that in Christ we have the opportunity to have new life with you. We thank you that you invite us to participate in that new life with you. And we thank you that in all of this, you have done this out of your great, great love, that you show us so much grace. I, I pray as we open up your word this morning and as we study it, that you would be speaking that it would not be my words, but yours. And and I pray that you would open all of our hearts and minds and ears to just listen to what you have to say. 
We thank you for your word and the way you reveal yourself to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So today, to start, we're talking about new life in Christ today, and specifically what it looks like to show that we are participating in the new life that we have received in Christ. And when I say new life, um, there are a lot of things that come to mind, and um, I'm going to try and give you a, a clear definition of new life in Christ. And to do that, I am going to use one of my favorite stories of all time. And I have to start off by talking about a character by the name of Eustace Scrub. If you've never heard of Eustace Scrub, I am sorry, because you should hear of him. And if you haven't, he is from the, the books of the Chronicles of Narnia. If you have never read those books, let me tell you, a sermon application that you should just take, no, no matter what age you are, you should read the children's books, the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, when you read them, a really important thing, start with The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and work out by publication date. A lot of the newer ones, um, somebody said, we can make money if we redo them chronologically. Don't read those ones. They ruin the story. Um, I'm very opinionated on the Chronicles of Narnia, as you're about to see. Um, but the Chronicles of Narnia are children's books. But the theology in the Chronicles of Narnia, they're written by C.S. Lewis, who is an amazing thinker. Um, Mere Christianity, a book he wrote, is a book that I read and constantly am challenged by. I just can't believe. And then I read that book, and that book's more written for adults. And then I come and I read the Chronicles of Narnia, these children's books that are all like, like you can read all seven of them in a month, and it will not be a hard read. You won't break a sweat reading them. They are just short, simple books. But the theology of them is so deep. And, and the depth of his understanding of the human condition and of who Jesus is is so amazing that when you read them, you will be edified no matter what age you are. They are wonderful, wonderful books. And in these books, in, in the third book, there's this character by the name of Eustace Scrub. Eustace Scrub is a, um, he is a cousin of two characters that had been in earlier books, Edmund and Lucy. We're not going to talk about them at all today. They're great. Um, but, but Eustace Scrub is this character that when you first are introduced to him, his cousins are looking at a painting that they're like, that looks like a ship from Narnia. And they're in modern, or not modern, but like 1950s England. And then Eustace starts making fun of them. Oh, you guys have a playland. And then all of a sudden they all get sucked into the painting and they're all of a sudden in the water and they get brought aboard this ship. And all of a sudden, Eustace is in this new world that is so different than anything he'd imagined. He's a very logical boy, and he's also just a butthead. Um, Eustace Scrub is written for the first, like, six chapters of the book as someone that you just don't like. A big part of the books are, like, him writing these little journals where he just insults all the other characters. And when you read it, you understand it's supposed to be kind of farcical. They're running out of water, and so every night he's sneaking and taking more water, and he gets caught and then blames it on everyone else for not helping him because he has like a delicate disposition. He, he's bitter about the way others do things well rather than being glad that they've done well. He, he is full of malice. He's full of envy. He's greedy. He's all these negative things. And that is the first six chapters of the book are focused on this really negative kid. And then in the seventh chapter, the, this moment happens where um, they, they actually, their ship breaks and they have to stop on an island. By the way, if you've, the whole point of the book is they start off at this land called Narnia and they decide we're going to travel as far as we can because we know if we travel as far as we can along this ocean, at the end of it is Aslan's country. And that's where they want to go. Um, it is a story of a flat earth. Um, I tell you that because, because you know, it's, it's a children's story, Okay. 
So, um, but they, they try and go towards this place that is very, very far away. And, they, and they, they're trying to go there, and as they go, they're stopping on different islands and different adventures happen. But, but about halfway through, they, they, a sea monster attacks them and knocks down their mast, and so they have to stop at this island and figure out what to do. And when they get there, everyone's like working together to figure out what to do, and Edmund just goes off on his own because he's like, I don't like these people anyways. And he winds up, he finds a dragon's cave. And he goes in there, and, and, and he looks around, it's full of gold, and he puts on this gold bracelet, and he falls asleep, and when he wakes up, he's a dragon. Now, some of you, if you've never been exposed to Narnia before, are sitting here thinking, why are we spending time on this at church? And it's a fair thing, but, but we're going to go a little bit further, because once he becomes a dragon, there's this beautiful thing that happens. Uh, because he starts to realize how wicked he was, how bitter. He starts to realize his malice, his selfishness. He starts to realize all these things. And then there comes a point where he realizes, I don't want to be like this anymore. And we're talking about new life today. And as we talk about new life, we're going to look specifically at him. Be- because he, he tries in the moment, he tries, he's wearing his dragon skin, and he takes his claws, and he starts to claw off his skin. And he claws off a layer of his skin. And then looks and he says, okay, I got rid of a layer. And then he goes, oh, I'm still a dragon. I'm still what I was before. And so he claws off another layer. And he claws off another layer. And then he realizes, I can't get rid of this. And in the book, it is a gut-wrenching moment. And it's, it's from that moment that, that we, get, um, we get this amazing writing. It's actually in your bulletins. You see, because Edmund, in that, Ed, Edmund Eustace in that moment is unable to bring himself away from who he once was. And so I'm going to read for you what, how he describes. He, he does get better. Um, he is no longer a dragon by the end of the story. Uh, and I'm going to read the moment. He, one night he goes off, and the next morning he comes back, and he sees his cousin Edmund, and he's all of a sudden not a dragon, and Edmund's like, what happened? And so he tells him about, I tore off all these layers of my skin and nothing changed. And then he, read, and then he says this. So this is Eustace talking. Then the lion said, the lion is Aslan, if you, it, he's Jesus, essentially, it's an allegory for Jesus. But then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near, nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought I had, it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if, if you've ever picked the scab of, off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt, and, and there it was lying in the grass, only even ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. This children's story just so perfectly illustrates 
what it is life, like to enter new life in Christ. Be, because we who were so wretched and at our best we could peel off layers but come nowhere near what we needed to do to be in life with Christ, we need Jesus to come in. In, the way, in, in this story, it's in Aslan the Lion. If you read the books in order, it makes a lot of sense. But in the way that he rips to the heart of Eustace and peels away who he once was. And then the, I love the imagery of he's, he's, he picks him up. He, he, and, and Eustace says, I, I didn't much like what was happening, but I knew it was better than what was before. Because Eustace realizes how awful he is on his own. His old self is so wicked that he wants to be completely free of it. And so even though the process is painful and hard, once it's complete, the new life is so much better. And it goes on to say at the end of this chapter, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. But to be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. When we talk about our new life in Christ, the process of it is Christ has made us alive. And then the process moves towards, are we living that life out? And so we're going to talk about that today. And today we're going to try and answer the question, what characteristics show we are participating in the new life in Christ? The answer to this is not, once we become a believer, we're perfect. If you're a believer and you're in the audience, you know that's not true, at least for yourself. If you're in the audience and you think you're perfect, talk to me afterwards, okay? Um, but, but the point is, is that, that when we enter into that new life, it is a painful process. And on the other side of it, we're so much better. But then it's, it's like how C.S. Lewis puts it, the cure had begun. Because we still have an old self that we have to turn away from, but, but we start to be more and more like Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at today in the book of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is split into two parts. The first three chapters of Ephesians tell us the story of God's story of the gospel. What God is doing, what Jesus is doing, the cosmic level of the gospel story. And it's far broader than what we usually talk about. I'm going to illustrate that in a moment. The first three chapters tell us God's story, and then chapters four through six, where we're going to land today in chapter four, tell us the story of how we fit into God's story. And how we are able to participate into the new life that we have been given. And so Ephesians begin. Ephesians is a letter written by Paul. Um, and when Paul wrote the letter, he's writing it to the church of Ephesus. Um, it's a church he had been to at least once in the last decade, probably only one time. Um, he, he was there for a while. And now he writes them this letter a, a ways off where, where he encourages them in their faith. Encourages them to understand and live out the gospel. It is not a letter where the church is messing up a lot and Paul's like, guys, come on. It's a letter where Paul is like, just so excited. It is a letter that is like the most exciting letter in the world and you can tell that because as Paul is writing it, there's a ton of run-on sentences that are borderline ridiculous. If you are an English teacher, you're going to struggle a bit today um, because there are a couple times where Paul writes sentences that you're like, it's got to stop somewhere and it doesn't. Now, if you have an ESV Bible, um, this is a note. If you have like an NIV and you're looking this up at home, in the NIV, they add periods to make it more pleasant to read in modern language. If you have an ESV Bible, it won't do that. Or NASB, I don't think does either. Um, but there's just a little side note at the start. But, but as we start, Paul is writing this letter to a church to encourage them to live out the gospel and to remind them of the gospel that they have heard. 
So Ephesians 1.4, even as Jesus chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. When Paul starts to describe the gospel and the blessings we have received in Christ, the starting point is we were chosen by Jesus before the foundations of the world. Before creation happened, there was a plan in place. And that plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Jesus, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. When you think about the gospel, do you think about all things? This is something, this, this week as I prepared for this, I was like, huh, because I think about me. I think about you guys. I think about humanity. But the vision of the gospel from before time is that all things, things of heaven and things of earth would be united in Christ. That is such a broad scope and we are a part of it. And that is wonderful. And as image bearers of God, we are given a very unique place in it, as we will see in a moment. But, but the starting point of the gospel is before time, there was a plan for all things, to unite all things in Christ, things of heaven and things on earth. And then we go on. We're going to jump into Ephesians 2. Again, I'm just doing a quick overview of 1 through 3. And in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, this is one sentence. And it's a super long sentence, but it's one of my favorite sentences. You should memorize it. And don't memorize part of it without the whole thing because then you're memorizing part of a sentence and that's weird. Here we go. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I'm going to keep reading in a second, but before I do that, when it says dead, what can a corpse do? Nothing. A corpse can decay. A corpse cannot become alive again on its own. The story of Frankenstein is like a a weird doctor who brings a thing back to life. It's not the story of a corpse that just goes, I'm going to live again. And you may be like, well, zombie movies, but just back off. We're at church. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the power or the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're halfway there. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even as we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I love this verse, sorry, this sentence so much, these seven verses. And they illustrate perfectly what the gospel is. We were dead, unable to do anything. But God, because of his mercy and his great love for us, made us alive again in Christ. It's not because we were pretty good and so close to life that Jesus said, I'll just nudge him a bit further. We were dead. We were children of wrath. At our best, we followed after the pattern of the world. And we were not worth it. But Jesus said, you are worth it. And, and the actions that he took brought us to life. And not only brought us to life, because that something when we talk about new life, sometimes we stop it there and we say, well, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that when we die someday, we get to go to heaven. And that's true. But it is so narrow from the God who before time existed wanted to unite all things in Christ. Because not only does he want us to be in heaven with, a, with him someday, He goes on to say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's not something you have done. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not just invited into new life. We are invited to participate in this process that Jesus is doing in bringing new life to all who will accept it. We are invited into the gospel as participants, not just people that are, are made alive. We're invited to be a part of life coming to the universe as Jesus originally planned. We who were dead have been made alive in Christ by grace, and we are invited to participate in the renewing work of all things being unified in Christ. Gets me really excited when I read it, because we are invited to so much more than what we lived for before Christ. It's not just, hey, I did this for you. It's, I did this in you so that you could join me in doing this with others. That is the gospel we are invited into. And so with that, that's Ephesians 1 through 3. We, what characteristics show we are participating in the new life in Christ? That's the question we're trying to answer, and that is in Ephesians 4 through 6. Now we're starting verses 17 through 32 is where we're going to be, but, but verses 1 through 16 present a picture. That, that The starting point of Ephesians 4, when Paul starts to talk to the church about what it looks like to be a part of the story that God is doing and in uniting all things together in Christ. The starting point of that story in Ephesians 4 is Paul says, if all things are to be united in Christ, the starting point of that is the church being united in Christ. And, and so from 4 to 6, the biggest idea that happens is that we need to be unified in Christ. And we're going to look at this more together because Ephesians four seventeen through 32 shows us what are the markers that we actually live in that unity? What are the markers that we're doing this well? Are we participating in the new life in Christ that we have been offered by him? Or are we passively just ignoring it or not following along? So the first thing we need to do is we need to recognize the old life we once lived. When we come to Ephesians four seventeen, Paul begins, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. And I want to pause there. When it says, now this I say, that is a very normal thing for Paul to say. I say this, this I say. He says things like that all the time. But when he says, and testify in the Lord, this is the only time Paul uses it this way in the New Testament. And he is trying to stress, this is not just my opinion. This is if the gospel is true, this is what you need to do. This is what it looks like. The church should be the unified the unified body of Christ on the earth, participating in the renewing work that he is doing, and this is what it looks like. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity." The starting point of the gospel is we have to recognize what we once were. In the the Chronicles of Narnia, that, that story of Eustace Scrub, the moment he begins to realize how awful he'd been, he desires to be something new. And it still takes some time, but the starting point of that is he realizes who he was. He says, that's not who I want to be anymore. Now, this is a really interesting and challenging passage when it says, um, you, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. It, there's an idea, we were once dead in our trespasses. It's talking about who we were before Christ. If you're like me, you became a believer at a young age. 
And, and if you became a believer at a young age, this passage can be kind of hard to understand because it's, well, you know, like I, I guess, now, this sermon is mostly PG. And, and okay, but the, the next image is going to be a graphic image of a Gentile who is so wicked, so callous, so hard-hearted that parents, you might want to cover your kids' eyes. This is me. That's me. Oh, no, I went one too far. That's me right there. This is me before I was a believer, when I was futile in my mind, alienated from the life of God because of my ignorance, hard-hearted, callous, given to sensuality, and greedy for impurity. About a year, year and a half after this is when I became a believer. And so I'm sorry I have to show you this image, but, but this is who I once was. And church, I say this to be like a little jokey, because if you became a believer at a very young age, like, I do not remember what I was like at this age. My parents can tell you that I was like a terror. I talked all the time. I was like everywhere, and I was kind of weird. Um, I, I liked riding my bike. I liked playing video games. I liked playing basketball. I liked watching TV. I liked all the things normal kids do. I don't remember the greedy for impurityness that I was or the given to sensuality. The, the point of this, though, and the reason I'm showing this picture is because for some of you, if you became a believer at a very young age, you may be hearing a passage like this and like, yeah, I've, I've moved past that. But, but the idea of recognize the old life we once lived, there's a reality to it we still may be living that old life. So we need to not rec- just recognize the old life we once lived, but we also need to look at where we may still be living the old life. This is something that can be very challenging. Because you see, I, I became a believer when I was nine. And when I was nine, I, th- there were probably changes. I, my mom said there were changes. I don't remember them. But as I got older, when I became a teenager, there were times where I took steps towards being more and more like Christ, and there are times when unfortunately I didn't. When I walked away from the truth that I should be living in Christ, and even though I was offered the new life and I was in the new life, I was justified in Christ, I was taking actions that were of my old life, of the dead life that I no longer needed to live. And so when we ask, when we look at this and Paul says, don't walk like you used to walk your old self, it's not just about the moment of salvation. It's about where you still walk in a way that is opposite of what Jesus calls us to do. It, it's when we walk in a way that it is a life of death where we're, we're still walking and still enslaved by the sin that we're not really enslaved to, but we don't live the way we should. And, and so the starting point, we need to recognize the old life we once lived and where we may still be living the old life. And the next thing we need to do is set the old life aside, be renewed, and put on the new life. And now you may read this and say, Matt, that's three, like, like this, these are like individual action points and you've got three verbs in one. And that, that's really poor sentence structuring on Paul's part because the next part of this is all one sentence. And so we're, we're going to look at it together. We, we must set aside who we were, be renewed, and put on the new self is what we're talking about. And, and Paul starts this section, verse, verses 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I'm going to pause there for a moment. Because one of the things that I think is so interesting as I read the book of Ephesians is that Ephesians in, encounters the whole scope of humanity. There are parts of it that are for the heart. There are, are experiential parts. And there are parts of it that are clearly for the mind. 
Because the, the gospel is the gospel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It, it takes all of who you are. And at this point, when Paul is talking, he's saying, you've got to give that up. And, and the way to know what you need to give up is because you've learned Christ. There is a head knowledge aspect to this. In the Greek language, what's being taught about here, or what's being brought up here, is, is the teaching and understanding of the teaching. And, and so it is so important. There, there are times where we may say, well, well I feel far from God, or I don't feel like I'm walking in a wrong way. But, but the reality is, is that if we have learned Christ, and if there is an intellectual component, and, and that is such an important part of this. Paul is imploring them by their hearts, by their souls, and by their minds throughout the book of Ephesians. And it's so important that, that when he talks to them about getting rid of the old, he says, the mind's got to be engaged. There's got to be an intellectual, a head knowledge component to go along with the heart knowledge. It's not only head knowledge. It's not only heart knowledge. It's all of it needs to be there together. And and so Paul goes on to say, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now there are three things being asked of us in this. The first is put off your old self. The second is you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind. And the third is put on your new self. And, and if you notice, the middle one, you are being renewed, is passive. It's not actually something you do. Um, the, the, what's happening here, the, you put off your old self. Um, a lot of times uh, when I was younger, I, I looked at a passage like this and said, yeah, when I became a believer, I put off my whole old self. But, but the verbiage and the way that Paul is talking here is this is a continual process. In your life, when you realize you are living as your old self would have lived, living in the way of the world, you need to put that off. And as you put that off, there is a work being done in you. You are being renewed in the spirit of your mind by the Holy Spirit. And then you can put on your new self. So there's an action we take, an action that God, through the Holy Spirit, is actively doing in our lives. And finally, then there's an action that we take as as we are renewed to be that new person we start to want to put that self on us instead. And and so we need to recognize the old life we once lived and where we may still be living the old life. We need to set the old life aside, be renewed, and put on the new life. And the final thing, and this this is where it all comes together, because if you just read these two, you may think, well, I could do these on my own. I could go home this afternoon and do some of this. But there is a reality in this that we cannot do this on our own. Because the final thing Paul talks about is we need to live the new life in the context of community, in unity with each other in Christ. If you want to be someone who participates in the new life that we have in Christ, the starting point of this is how you live in a community of believers. Many young people, they they graduate high school, and it breaks my heart, but they go off to college and say, well, I love Jesus, I don't need the church. It's, it's just a thing that happens to a lot of young people. Or, or I, I like being involved in, in a Bible study, but I don't want to go to church on Sunday. I don't need to. And, and they, they look at the context of community as not necessary to their Christian walk. It has become so individualized to them that they don't realize that, that you cannot grow in Christ on your own. Yes, Christ is doing this. Set aside the old, be renewed. He's doing the renewing through the Holy Spirit. But the way that that is happening is when we interact with each other, when, when we start to realize, because guess what? Your old self, the things that you do wrong, 
you don't realize you're doing them wrong. If you realized them, you were doing them wrong, you wouldn't do them, right? You, you would step away if you were like, man, this isn't the right way to do this. You would do it better. I, we have a lawn that is in disarray because I have not asked anyone for help with our lawn, and I'm not asking anyone for help right now. I'm saying this because I look at our lawn and I go, yeah, this is about as good as I can do. <laughs> Where it's going to snow today, and then I won't have to look at it for like six months, and that's a wonderful thing for me, just being honest. Um, but, I, but I say all this because we cannot grow out of who we were on our own because the, the way that we were, the old life we live, yes, the Holy Spirit is going to convict us, but we need a community to show us because there are sins that we are blind to until other people speak truth in our lives. And, and if we don't have other people speaking truth in our lives, and if we don't speak truth to other people, we're just in echo chambers. Because if, if you're praying to God for the same thing all the time and God's not answering and you just keep saying the same prayer, and keep saying the same thing, and keep doing the same thing, and God's not responding, then maybe you need to talk into your community, and somebody can say, hey, why on earth is that what you're doing? There have been many times in my life where talking to another believer has made something so clear that it had been so muddy in my life for so long. Paul begins this section, he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, when you hear this, the word neighbor here, the, the context in Ephesians is the, the other members of the church. Yes, Jesus in the story of the Good Samaritan says, who is your neighbor? And it's, it's whoever acts well. But in this story, the starting point in, in this passage, Paul is talking about your neighbors in the body of Christ. Do you put away falsehood when you talk with them and speak the truth with his neighbor? And do you allow, do you put away falsehood and allow others to speak truth to you? as you're speaking truth to them. The, he go, goes on to give a lot of examples of how to do this. The first, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Church, as I read this passage this week um, and, and, and really studied these last two weeks, the, the one thing I was very encouraged by, um, I have been very angry the last couple weeks. I've been very frustrated the last couple weeks. And sometimes we can feel guilty because we're angry. But there are, anger is not the problem. The problem is what you do with that anger. There, there's a story, Jesus flips over the tables in the temple in his anger. And Jesus never sinned, so when he flipped over those tables, that can't be bad, right? I mean, it, there, it is possible to be angry and not sin. And in the context of community, what becomes very important as we read this passage is that when you are angry with someone else in this community, what steps do you take? Because he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do give no opportunity to the devil. If you're angry with someone here, one of the best things you can do is pray and then go talk specifically to that person about your anger. If, if I'm angry at Jess and, and I go talk to everyone in the world but Jess and then eventually I talk to Jess, how wicked is that? If you're angry with someone, handle it an appropriate way. Go talk with them. Don't let the sun set on the anger and give the devil no opportunity. When you're angry and let it fester, it turns into bitterness. And, and it leads to quarreling and it leads to just a negative community. And if our goal is to be a community that puts aside falsehood and speaks truth, then when we're angry with each other, we need to love each other enough to speak that anger in an appropriate way. Sometimes in your anger, you may need to process and pray before you go talk to the person. 
But there's a way to do that in an appropriate way. It's not being angry and telling everyone you can. I'm angry about this. It's speaking to the person that you're angry with or speaking to a wise counsel in a, in a context that is appropriate. It's not just walking around saying, I'm angry. Paul looks at the unity of the body. If we are to be united with all things in Christ, then the starting point is we need to be united together. When there is anger, we need to handle it in an appropriate way. The next thing Paul says is, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Of of all the verses that we're going to read today, this is outside of Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Um, This is probably my favorite because Paul presents a picture of transformation that is so complete. It is repentance to a perfect degree. It is a total 180. Let the person who steals quit stealing. Okay, that's a good start. Let him begin to work or that person to work with their hands. So let them go from stealing to working. And then let them be prepared, have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see the transformation to go from someone who takes from others to someone who works honestly to someone who is ready to give others? The starting point could be don't steal. And he could just leave it there, but he says don't steal, work properly, do honest work. And then he goes further and says, and be ready to give to others. That is a full transformation of the heart, mind, and soul. Because it's not enough to just say, well, I'm going to quit stealing, but now I'm working for me. But to be prepared to give. That is the transformation. And Paul is looking for that. He uses thievery. Um, In this passage, there's a super long story we don't have time to go into. But essentially, in Ephesus at that time, stealing was cool with everybody, sort of, in the temple. Um, It gets really confusing. It's really confusing because we read it and we're like, how was stealing ever okay? But inside of their context... Stealing would have been a very common thing, but this could be just as easily applied to lying, to gossip, to to anything else. What Paul is saying is the person you were before that was destructive to the community becomes so completely different than that person that you are prepared to give into the community to those that before you would have taken from. That is a full heart transformation, and that is what Paul is asking us to do inside the context of unity in our community. He goes on, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He starts off here talking about corrupting talk. If, if your words are destructive, if your words when you talk to other people are fostering disunity in the community, and we're going to talk about more, more about what that looks like in a moment, but, but if when you speak, It is negative towards the community. And this isn't saying everyone needs to be perfect and single-minded, but if when you speak, you are are doing so in a way that, that hurts the community and hurts how people view each other, then rethink it. Speak only what is good for building up as fits the occasion, and it may give grace to those who hear. Instead of corrupting with your talk, offer grace with your talk. Go from a person who stirs dissension to a person who upholds the good of who we all are in Christ. And finally, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In the midst of all of these acts with each other, don't push away the Holy Spirit because the reason you're able to be renewed is because of what the Spirit is doing in your life. 
The final two verses sum up everything Paul says in this section. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The word clamor um, is a weird word. Um, I can't even define it as I'm thinking, but the Greek word behind it means quarreling. So, so let all bitterness and wrath and anger and quarreling and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Let actions of bitterness, let, let the actions in the community that are negative and the motive behind them, the malice, let, let all of that be gone. Put it away. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as, Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. We're invited to follow the same example that Jesus has given to us. So we we need to start by recognizing the old life we once lived and where we may still be living the old life. We need to set the old life aside, be renewed, and put on the new life. And we need to live the new life in the context of community, in unity with each other in Christ. You cannot live out your faith alone. If you're like, I'm doing really well on my own, I'm really well where I'm at, And the reason you don't realize it is because you're living in your old life in this individually minded place. It's it's very hard to break free of this because what this takes is honesty, putting away falsehood, and being truthful and vulnerable with other people. And that is hard. It's very hard to be vulnerable with other people. Um, I've been preparing for the sermon. First service, there were a lot less people, so this was a lot easier. Um, But I've been preparing for the sermon, and I've been thinking about where... Am I least building up the community and how I act? Where am I most living for my old self or the, the dead life I once lived? And, and the reality is, is when I, when I think about this, what, what comes to mind makes me very uncomfortable. And I'm going to say it in a minute, but I have to like build myself up to it. And it's frustrating that I do. But when you read this alone into the mirror or your wife's in the other room ironing your outfit, thanks, babe, um, it's a lot easier to say it out loud. And she knows me pretty well, so it's easier to be vulnerable with her. But, but everybody... I am a person who, when I am at my worst, I am passive. And in my passivity, the reason I am passive is not because I'm go with the flow. The reason I'm passive is because I'm like, instead of speaking the truth I need to speak, instead of confronting the things I need to confront, instead of leading the way I need to lead, I would rather people just like me. I would rather upset the community and the unity of our community because I'd rather just have people like me. When a leader does something that they shouldn't be doing, one of my leaders, I I will speak out against it, but a lot of times I will speak out very softly. I won't say the truth the way it needs to be said because even though I need to speak firmly, I don't want to do that because I want them to like me at the end of the conversation. And, And as I say this, listen to it because there's good in it is I want to build relationships where there's not bitterness or hatred or malice or anger and those kind of things. But when I become more focused on do they like me? Then are we a community that builds up each other in Christ? Do we speak truth to each other? Do we put aside falsehood? The whole community is put at risk because I, instead of focusing on what is true and what is right, instead of speaking kindly and tenderheartedly and, and forgiving as I say it, but saying the truth that needs to be said, I hide it behind layers of, I hope they still like me after this. And it stinks. It is something that that there are two men that I meet with every month who they always ask me, how's ministry going? How's your marriage going? And how's your walk with God going? And those men that I meet with, and when we talk about it, this is one of the questions that we went to Hero Up last weekend with all our boys. 
And the, the, the host of that was an old Moody professor. He's why I wear the bow tie. Long story, other time. But, but he is somebody that when he sees me in two sentences can make me feel more uncomfortable than anyone in the world because of how vulnerable we've been with each other in a good way. And, and I say that because, church, if we want to be people who participate in the new life of Christ, we need to be willing to have these open and honest conversations with each other. We need to put aside falsehood and speak truth to each other. And we need to do it. I, as I say all this, um, I do want to say one thing. For some of you, in this moment, you may be thinking, Matt, most people would tell me to shut up more than they would tell me, hey, you need to speak more firmly. This application is very individualistic. It's very hard to do this for you because you know who you are a lot better than I know who you are. You know what cuts to your heart. You know where you live your old life better than I do. But you may not even realize it. Parents, I have an encouragement for you. It'll be real uncomfortable. Ask your kids, hey, where, where do I foster bitterness or anger? Where, where am I not leading well? Your kids will have an answer. Kids, ask your parents. They'll have a list, okay? Um, I say that in love. If, if, if you don't have kids or if they're far removed or whatever, um, ask other people in your community the same question and see how they respond. Because my gut is that people, if, if you're willing to be vulnerable with them and hear from them what they have to say, and then you're vulnerable back to them, it's going to improve the community, the unity of the community in Christ. And it is so important that that is what we live for. Because that is a mission that is bigger than us. It is a, it is, the gospel has been around since before time existed. God had a plan and chose us in Christ that we would be unified with him, that we who were dead in the trespasses of our sin would be made alive in Christ through grace, not through anything we could do. And then we are invited to participate in the community of unity of believers who are following after Christ in Christ. We are invited to be a part of that. And to be a part of that, we need to be in communities where we are open and honest with each other. And on top of that, we need to be people who are willing to speak the truth to each other and have the truth spoken to us. If you leave today going, I'm going to go speak the truth to everyone, but no one's speaking the truth back to you, you're doing something wrong. I also, I want to encourage you as we end, this is in your bulletins on the bottom, and there's a typo of a comma, and I'm sorry, it probably won't phase any of you, but it's bothering me already knowing it's there. Um, but I want to encourage you parents, this is a great question to ask in your car with your kids. Is our community, is our family, because if you're a family of believers, you're a small community of believers, is there unity? Are, are, do you guys... Are you a community, one of bitterness, wrath, anger, quarreling, slander, and or malice? And don't just answer, well, not really. Think about, are there areas where bitterness is being fostered or perpetuated in what we do? Are there areas where, where wrath is, are, are we angry with each other to the point of action? Are, is there a lot of quarreling? Is there a lot of slander? Do we lie a lot about each other? Are our motives full of malice in the way that we treat each other? And, and, when you ask that, what's really cool is you'll have a very clear answer of if you were honest on the top half by were you kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving towards one another. Because if we answer those questions and, and we, we get mad at each other when we answer those, that's a good sign that the bottom part is probably not happening very well. But, but the point of this is if we want to be this type of community, the starting point is we have to talk about it. We have to desire the unity that we have in Christ more than our preferences. We have to be willing to say, I have an old life. 
I, on my own, am corrupted by it. There are things I am blind to. I need other people to help me see it so that I can put it aside and I can become more and more like Christ as he does the renewing work in me. And he wants me to be a part of this. He wants me to participate in this. We are all invited into this amazing gospel story with Jesus and all invited to go with him so far into it. We're we're not just someone that he made alive the end. We are made alive and invited to do good works and to participate with him. So let's go do that. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that before time, you had a plan and you chose us to be holy and righteous before you. That, that we would stand unified with all things in Christ if we turn to you. We thank you that it is by grace that we are saved. We could do nothing for ourselves, but, but we are invited to be a part of this mission with you. We are invited to participate in the unifying work of your Son, both in the church and in this world. And we pray as we go out um, that we would be willing to be vulnerable and open with each other, that we would put the unity of the body of believers above our own preferences, and we would be willing to be those that unite instead of divide. Where we need to set aside our old self, I pray you would make it very clear that we would do that. And, and where we need to put on that new life, I pray you would be doing the renewing work in our hearts so we are prepared to be more and more like your son Jesus. We thank you for how good you are and for the grace you have offered us and for the fact that we can participate in this with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.